and welcome to the Fintech Marketing Podcast. I'm Mariette Ferreira, your host and marketing director at LebNFS. In this roundtable, we're discussing B2B marketing in fintech and financial services. Now, B2B has always been treated as the less interesting sibling to B2C, but fintechs are rewriting the marketing script and adopting B2C tactics from community building to guerrilla marketing. What can we learn from them? How do you strike a balance between appealing to an audience making rational decisions and standing out in a crowded space? And what tactics and team structures support your growth best? But before we get into it, let's hear from our sponsor. Would your fintech benefit from tapping into a global network of partners and the ability to access industry-leading capabilities? What are your payment plans? Visa, the world's leader in digital payments, is on hand with the expertise, programs, solutions, and partner networks to help make it happen. Bring your big idea to life. Partner with Visa to do it bigger and faster. Visit visa.co.uk forward slash fintech. Right, now let's dive in. Let me introduce you to our guests. First up, we have Elisa Copeman, Managing Director Marketing at Barclay Card Payments. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. And it's great to be here. Fantastic. Barclay Card needs no introduction, but could you maybe tell us a little bit about your role there? Yeah, absolutely. So I head up marketing for the payments division at Barclays, and we work with all types of businesses from right at the micro end, right up to big strategic global clients. And we cover all aspects of marketing from, you know, account-based marketing at the top end, through to digital and MarTech capabilities to our SME base. And uh, yeah, we have the full spectrum through the line for our clients. Fantastic. Secondly, we have Derek Sutton, VP of Marketing at Autobooks. Welcome to the show, Derek. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Fantastic. For those who don't know Autobooks, maybe you could tell us a little bit about them. Sure. Uh, Autobooks is a, we're a US-based fintech uh, growth stage. And what we do is we help small business owners get paid and financial institutions stay ahead of the competition. So in doing that, we effectively enable business owners to enroll directly through digital banking uh, at a financial institution to send digital invoices, accept online payments, uh, share a secure payment link, get paid as well, and hopefully you know, help uh, community-based and larger financial institutions kind of stave off the competition from PayPal, Square, and others. I feel like there's so much opportunity in that space. So I'm sure you guys are keeping busy. Yeah, we do too. Last but no means least, we have Erin Renders, Senior VP of Marketing at Checkout.com. Thanks for joining us, Erin. Thank you. Erin, what do you and your team look after at Checkout.com? So our organization drives growth for Checkout.com. Um, we're really focused on, again, delivering those world-class payment services for enterprise merchants on a global level. So a really global organization um, driving some of the most exciting, fast-paced growth that we're seeing out of fintech right now. Great. So let's dive in. I think everyone has agreed that B2B marketing has taken a shift in thinking, if nothing else, towards more being more customer-centric, more people-orientated. I've even heard people call it B2P, as in business to people. So even the jargon is caught up. Um, but there are B2Bs doing really interesting work across all areas of marketing, right? From CRM to social to content to brand. But many B2Bs still think they need to be serious and professional to sell to businesses, to show their credibility which often comes across as corporate, especially in finance. So it's tough when you're limited to stock photos on a website of people in suits shaking hands to show your human side. Elisa, 
What do you think? How do you show your human side in B2B marketing? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the way that you show your human side is by focusing on your customers. You know, if you make everything that you do customer centric and you really think about what that customer need is and think about the insights that drive the communication to your customer, then that's your halfway there. Because, you know, when you think about the diversity that we have in today's world across um, financial services, across payments and all all sort of B2B industries, you know, no business is the same. And, you know, growth is is driving a different way of communicating and, and the need of those customers, you know, you have to address what's right for them, not just me telling you how it's going to be. And so having that customer centricity really makes a difference in the way that you communicate. And I also think what's really important is about remembering the target audience. You know, B2B is broad. It can be from the tiniest one man band right up to, you know, massive global organizations. They are not the same. And so, you know, that label of B2B, you know, this thing around B2P is actually really relevant because it can be one person or it can be thousands of people. And it's then about pinpointing the individuals or groups within those larger organizations. And they're two quite different things. But I think focusing on customer, understanding the customer, having empathy with the customer, particularly at the moment and through the last 12 months, and being appropriate to them is really important. And not, you know, these big handshakes in skyscrapers, I think that's really in the past. And any brand that's going to be on that approach is really not going to get far at the moment, I think. Appropriate is a word that you used that's really struck me there. But I think uh, thinking about uh, SMEs and or SMBs, as you guys call them in the US, uh, the range of one-man bands through to, I think, what does it go up to like 250 is technically SME. Just within that range, that's a huge difference in business. So I, I think that's a very valid point, uh, Lisa, to just be thinking about the size of the business and not to be grouping everyone together. Absolutely. And I think it's really important to think about what's right for that customer and how they want to engage with you. Some people want to do everything online. Some people still like to have a personal relationship and some people like a bit in between. And I think, you know, it's really important to be able to give access however the customer wants to talk to you and however they want to be talked to. So, you know, thinking about, you know, the positioning through those different channels, but being consistent through all of the channels is really important. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Derek, how do you guys approach this? Yeah, so I, I would say similar to what Elisa said, I'll expand, expand on a little bit. So knowing the customer, so we, you know, B2B as a company, we sell the financial institutions, but at the end of our integration as a business owner that needs to use our app. And so we do a lot of work actually interviewing the end customer. And then we bring those stories back to the, to the financial institution. Oftentimes the financial institution doesn't have the time to go do that work. Quite frankly, we feel like as an embedded fintech solution, it's, it's our responsibility to know more about the market, the small business market, than the financial institution can themselves. And that's part of the value we bring. So understanding the business owners deeply, bringing their stories back into how we sell, if you will, um, and really like communicate our value, uh, value is core. So for us, um, we can be very human, right? We're fortunate enough with the topic of, of small business to, in, in, to be able to do that. At the same time, um, I think what's important too is when you talk to customers, even though there is this massive difference between a startup and a you know legitimate uh, business that's been around for 15 years generating $10 million in annual revenue, they all have one thing in common. They all need to get paid. And so if you talk to enough business owners and find a common attribute that you can rally around and tell stories around that, 
then that can be the top of, of the, of the emotional marketing, if you will, or the draw. And then within the segments, you can start to get more specific. So we kind of start with that high level emotional draw of every business owner has a cash flow problem. Uh, they all need to get paid. Let's start there. Let's tell stories. And then we can work in uh, more specifics and get transactional and compliance oriented when we need to. You talked a little bit um, about sharing your values, Derek, which helps to make you guys relatable uh, and I suppose connect with your audience. And, and I think that's really interesting because I think for smaller businesses, if you're purpose-driven, it's easier to tell that story. But I wonder if businesses sometimes think that you have to have a a, a greater societal purpose to be able to talk about it. You know, you have to have your your mission has to be to make the world a better place and you know save the environment but i think there's so much to be said for your values and purpose to just deliver value to customers and so truly solving customer problems so is that something you guys think about absolutely you know it turns out that a lot of business owners kind of don't care about the fluff because they're so in the day-to-day -day of their business and so one of the things we actually try to pride ourselves on is we want to understand the language a business owner uses related to banking products, and we want to talk the same way they talk. And then we want to help FIs understand, financial institutions understand, it's okay to do that as well. So my the, the thing I, I commonly say to our team, and I say to financial institutions, if you want a transactional relationship, talk in transactions. If you want a personal relationship, talk personally. The only way to talk personally and relate to somebody, like I wouldn't know Aaron and Alyssa how, how they would communicate and talk unless I talked to them. And if I want to relate to them, I need to understand, um, you know, uh, how they talk and how they how they think about the world, if you will. And so, for example, uh, like one one anecdote for the audience is like one of the biggest pieces of feedback we got in talking to businesses. They said, you know, we didn't expect um, accepting payments to be as complicated as brain surgery or rocket science and things of that. Word. So we use that in our marketing copy. Like we literally have a subject line that goes out to business owners that says, did you think payments were going to be brain surgery? And it's our number one open rate email. Financial institutions look at that subject line. They're like, we would never send that. And we say, yeah, but you're, it's actually what, you're, what your customers most relate to. So you can either do that or you can be transactional. Aaron, how do you guys approach uh, your thinking around the language and the, the balance of, I suppose, let's call it professional versus relatable, relevant, and conversational? How do you guys approach that? Yeah, I think Derek makes a lot of good points, which is how do we speak their language? And I think that that follows through very much in the way that Checkout.com approaches language and marketing as well. I, I will say there's an interesting element, and I think um, a shift that has happened in B2B marketing behind the concept of trust and how do we establish that with our users? And you know, we're financial institutions and we need to establish trust. I think that there's been a really interesting shift that's happened where trust, we used to say, okay, so we have to be professional. We have to be a little bit serious and we have to be super reliable. And I think what's happened is it's, well, we have to be really authentic. We have to say what we're going to deliver and be willing to deliver that every time we engage with that customer. So I think as we think about 
that that shift to be more human as B2B marketers. I think that it's really rooted in authenticity. I think in part, that's also the working environment that we're in now. I am in my home. I am in my living room right now. By nature, the last year has made all of us slightly more personal with one another. And I think B2B marketing is starting to kind of go in that direction as well. Two words have struck me so far, which is uh, authentic and appropriate. And I think I, I agree that B2B marketing is definitely moving in that direction. But I feel like uh, as sort of North Stars, marketers could definitely work towards that. The thing is with B2B marketing or, or us sort of uh, targeting a B2B audience, you're effectively trying to appeal to people that are not spending their own money, right? So which means that their decision-making process is, is maybe a bit more irrational and their personal motivations are different. So how do you take that into account when you're trying to market to them? Lisa? So firstly, from a small business perspective, it is their own money. It, it is, you know, they're thinking about their different priorities. They're thinking about where they're going to put their resources because they are masters of many things. And actually, you know, we need to think about you know, ha- you know, engaging with someone so that they, they will consider where they want to put their money. So I do think that in the smaller, at the smaller end, obviously, you know, it's it's quite a, um, the management of, of how they're looking at resources within their business, how they're looking at their cash flow, what they're spending it on, what's going to give them the best return, and also where they have the time. You know, so a lot of small business owners, you know, they are completely time poor and they need things that can happen quickly and engage. And that's why we need everything to work and deliver on the promises that we that we give. I think further up the chain, you're right. You know, people sit on, on top of huge budgets at times. Uh, we're trying to get them. We're competing against other uh, companies in terms of, again, not just money, but also resources and time and effort required to make the decision uh, to buy from us versus somebody else. And so, again, from a marketing perspective, it's about building credibility. It's about using content. It's about using thought leadership to really engage with those clients and say, you know, this is the best decision for you and your business. You know, this is what it's going to do for your organization, not just for the person that you're talking to. You've got to almost make it broader than that. I think the other piece as well, you've got to give a real rationale as to why they can then sell it up the chain if required. You know, they've got stakeholders within their own organizations. And so you're, you're marketing to them, but you're also giving them a story to create themselves as to then go and sell in as to a rationale as to why they would spend the company's money on such and such an initiative and what benefit that is going to bring to their organization. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've seen some great pieces of content, literally calling it out, how to convince your boss and giving them the firepower to be able to sell it up the chain. I think that sometimes um, that piece is forgotten because really the person you're trying to sell to is taking on an element of risk. You know, they have to use their own gravitas internally, their credibility to to convince the business on your behalf. So it's not just the relationship part, but also you have to give them the firepower. Absolutely. Yeah, you, you need them to influence. They are an influencer. And I think, you know, we're going to come on to talk a little bit about the, the role of influencers within B2B. But even specifically for them, they have to go and sell it in. They have to influence. And it can sometimes take a very long time. They've got to keep momentum behind it and you've got to fuel that fire. Derek? Yeah, I think the other side of that is, um, you know, there's there's people buying these products as well. And so uh, they're looking for career advancement. They're looking for, you know, building and, and taking pride in what they do on the day-to-day basis. And so they want to put their best foot forward through their organization. They also care about their customers, hopefully. 
And so that's where the storytelling and bringing the customer voice into the decision gives you that momentum that Alyssa's talking about where uh, they can, they're willing to go put their career at stake, their reputation at stake. They're really, they're, they're willing to use that decision to advance themselves because it benefits their customers and they actually really care about their customers and they really care about their company. So I think there's a really good uh, way to use that uh, to kind of take this rigid process at sometimes and make it more emotional and relational. Amazing. Aaron, any B2B financial services or fintech companies that you're keeping an eye on? Anyone you think that's doing it well? I think there's a ton. I think of the work that Squarespace has done. I think the work that Shopify has done, and especially against their enterprise campaigns. You know, my former employer, Square, who a little bit more more new to the European scene, but certainly both in the way that they've approached enterprise marketing, but also obviously SMB, which I think they're more known for, and really being able to embrace uh, embrace the stories of their users to just to sell their product. Um, it's interesting. I think Square is a company where I look at where they've they've really shown um, how advocacy and authenticity built in your customer base benefits your margin over the long run. I remember, you know, a time when we were there where there was an Amazon competitive product that came out and it was a lower price point. And people, you know, the Wall Street, everyone was like, this is going to be a problem for Square. And I think what Square showed time and time again is by by sharing those customer stories um, and really leveraging human elements of marketing and um, it's not just about what you can grow at the top of the funnel, but really the stronger business metrics that you can grow over the long run. Yeah, I love that to be able to actually tie the relationship back to revenue and to margin. Using that as a segue, actually, I'd like to move us on to an interesting challenge for B2B, and that's attribution, a process that can be challenging at the best of times, but in my experience, even more so in B2B, where you're dealing with longer sales cycles, sometimes years rather than days or weeks. And there's more offline elements, sales conversations, events, et cetera. Now, in the B2C world, many businesses will be knee-deep in customer acquisition costs and lifetime values. So I'm interested to hear about the sort of metrics you use to measure customer success in your world. What does that look like over at Barclay Card, Lisa? So we do use metrics such as you know lifetime value, particularly again in the smaller to mid, where a lot of the channels that we use are digital. So you can track the end-to-end tracking is there, the data is there. And we obviously look at investment decisions and optimization through those sorts of channels. I think further up the chain, where that relationship piece, and as you say, some of the deal times can be years in the making. It's an it's a it's an you know iterative process. So again, you're very reliant on data though to flow through that process. And there's various platforms and things that we use, obviously. But you you know, and but what gets tricky actually is it, it's a combination of digital and platform and data and human element. So you are also quite reliant at times on salespeople completing things properly so that you can get the tracking. And also, you know, convincing the salespeople that doing it accurately will mean that actually we'll be better off in the long run because if we can get the win, then we can do some more of it because it's been proven as a process. So there's some things like that, which I think are really quite interesting and, and also quite challenging. I mean, obviously, if we look at things like lead generation activity, you know, the stages of where we are in the terms of the relationship and, you know, when it comes to things like events and you know those sorts of investments from a marketing perspective, they are critical, particularly as we go further up the chain. For us, we do quite a lot of uh, events and and um, and other types of um, client engagement activities. 
And it is always has always been hard to prove the ROI on some of those types of things. Um, but now, you know, there is better reporting in place. Um, and, and, you know, we are more and more, you know, being asked to justify the spend on those sorts of things. And so we have to find a way to track and we have to make sure that the, that the, um, the, the appropriate things are in place in order to do that. Derek, have you guys nailed attribution? Uh, I wouldn't say that we nailed attribution just yet. So we're, we're, I think we're, you know, we're younger and earlier stage. And so for us, it's not as complicated, quite frankly. So I've, I've got it. I've got it pretty good here. So I use a couple of different things. So actually my attribution, this is crazy, but like most of my iterations and where I find success are through PowerPoint presentations our team is giving to a financial institution. So because, you know, the U.S. is, is, is crazy, you know, we have, uh, you know, 10,000 financial institutions, but all of our inbound mostly comes through these channels. And so financial institutions are coming to us and meeting with our team one-on-one. And so I get way more eyeballs on a PowerPoint presentation than I do on my website. You know, and, and I can say that, you know, like as a marketer, like I don't actually like my website, but I don't invest resources because I don't need to right now. Uh, so we iterate in PowerPoints, we iterate in PDFs and de- report downloads and webinars. And that's where our best work, you know, takes place. Oftentimes, you know, the in world isn't even seeing that, but that's also the tightest feedback loop. And so I can communicate directly with the team to say, did that work? How did they respond? I can jump on a sales call. I can see the feedback and then we can kind of change through there. Um, to measure things, we use lead velocity rate. And so lead velocity rate basically helps us understand where customers are in the stages that we track. We have historical timelines established of once they reach this point, if they have not met certain criteria at a certain time, they fall out. Um, but we know that you know the top of the, the, the first stage of the timeline, 74% are going to advance um, within a certain time. And, and if I can basically keep those stage gates filled with the right numbers, then I know at the end of that, they're going to become a client. And so we, we tightly measure what we call a lead velocity rate. That's so interesting because I wasn't expecting to hear today that we're, people are prioritizing PowerPoints over websites, but it makes so much sense if that's where the eyeballs are. I mean, if especially if you're a small business, you're going to throw your resource behind the tools that are going to have the biggest impact. So yeah, I, I love the thinking behind that. And it makes sense. And I suppose coming back to Elisa's point earlier, it's what's ever appropriate, right? Erin, thoughts? Yeah. I think um, really interesting thoughts across the board, but but I want to go back to to one thing that Lisa said, which is you know we have to find a way to to measure these things, and especially when we think about upper funnel initiatives or brand building initiatives. I think what is interesting is um, I think that there has almost been an over indexing for this need to measure everything. And this expectation, especially from our executives that we're partnering with, our C-levels, our CROs, our chief executive officers, that we can do that. Um, and I think as, a, as marketing leaders, one of the key things that we have to be um, willing to gain buy-in is like, listen, we can't measure everything. It's not quite there yet. Attribution isn't quite there yet. And I think a lot of times what we end up finding ourselves doing as we think about our marketing mix is over-indexing for the things that we can measure 
which often are things that have shorter term implications, things like digital marketing, right? Which have no what I call halo effect, right? The second you stop spending, they stop yielding, right? And so the challenge is, We underinvest in these things that are harder to measure, but over the long run, yield more for the business. And I think beyond that, measurement in marketing right now is somewhat inadequate in understanding the incrementality between these upper funnel initiatives. And again, these easier to measure, typically lower funnel, uh, click-based marketing initiatives. Um, And so I, I just as we think about measurement, one thing I'll say is like, we as a, as marketing professionals um, really need to be very cognizant over overselling the ability to really attribute because I think we force ourselves into a corner of making short-term business decisions that really aren't the right thing for the business in the long run. And I think that's a harder conversation for us to have with our executives, but I think it's critical if you really want to build a business that lasts over the long run. Lisa? Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's, it's a really interesting point. And I think, you know, because we also do measure things like brands, the advocacy, NPS, all of those things are metrics in their own right. They're not related directly to a sale. You can't say, I invested this dollar here and I got something off the back of it. But you can say, my customers are more engaged. My customers are recommending me. Uh, you know, my customers are coming back to me. And that's really important. But I completely agree. Trying to, when you're in sort of a, a discussion When you're looking at investment prioritization, when you're trying to get extra funding, you know, people want to see hard facts. And so it is our job to help our teams as well, to support them, to sort of tell that story and show the connection between what happens at the top and then what happens at the bottom. And that not everything, just because you can show a direct ROI at the bottom, doesn't mean that that's the, there's got to be a reason why that happened. And the reason why that happened is because that was done right at the top. And then that happens at the bottom. And I think it's connecting the dots throughout the the journey, if you like, throughout the the, the customer journey to show that the end result got there and that there are different things at play throughout the funnel. I completely agree with Erin on that. Yeah, same. I'll I'll give more kudos to Erin on this too. So all all things Erin on these replies. But um, at the end of the day, I think uh, you have to stay connected. A a really good relationship to your sales leader and your sales team is, uh, is important. Because at the end of the day, the CEO cares about top line revenue, they care about pipeline, they care about sales. As a marketer, if sales are happening and everything's working well, at the end of the day, if you have no attribution, you say, well, at least I know it's working because we're, we're, we're having success. And so then you can kind of back into the right attribution if you need to almost. But like if you have that tight alignment with sales and things are working, that's more important. Because what Aaron said is, is totally true. There are things we can do in marketing to game the system and track a lot of stuff that at the end of the day may not matter, quite frankly. And sometimes the easiest things to track are the things that get put in the board decks or the, or the presentation decks. And we don't know if those are actually uh, the attribution or the thing that led to the sale. Oftentimes, they're just the easiest thing to track. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think ultimately what we're trying to achieve is a point of knowing what should we do more of and what should we do less of. So we chase we're all chasing attribution, right? And, and you know, and that ends up in a board deck. But I, I couldn't agree more that you manage what you measure and therefore, you know, we sometimes start doing more of the stuff that we can measure, which sometimes defaults into tactical rather than thinking longer term strategic. So um yeah, I think some very valid points there and hopefully some great takeaways for, for our listeners. We're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. 
Looking to sharpen your competitive edge when it comes to design? Join hundreds of subscribers using 11FS Pulse to solve their users' problems and get to market faster. Discover over 4,000 user journeys from global brands like Revolut, Curve, and Soldo, and learn how to design winning customer propositions with our expert analysis. Get started today by visiting bit.ly forward slash get a pulse demo. In this second part of the show, I'd like to take a quick detour into influencer marketing. It grew in popularity in the early 2010s, maybe in 2000s, with the rise in certain social media platforms and a new generation coming to work and consuming content differently. It was heavily used in some industries, probably more FMCG, beauty, travel, etc. Definitely more B2C. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role of influencers or other creators in B2B marketing. Does it work, Derek? Uh, I think it does. Uh, so so we... Um... You know, I, I wouldn't say we're perfect at it yet or great, but I think I think it absolutely can work. The way to do it is uh, we use the customer, you know, a little bit as an influencer, i.e., bringing those stories up to the financial institution. So almost like letting their stories influence uh, the day-to-day decisions that financial institutions make. We also, I think, uh, influencer marketing is actually just a new spin in B two B of like case studies, <laughs> you know. So like we actually do that already. We've been doing it for a long time. You go talk to somebody, you hear their story, and you bring it out. It's a case study, and so uh, the new version of that is actually taking those case studies and putting them to life. So all things come around to to the origination of first principles, and so yeah, modernizing case studies. That's influencer marketing in B two B. I love that, <laughs> Aaron. What do you think? I, I think that that's an that's an interesting point on on and and definitely I think a, a part of it, but I do think again it goes back to this idea of authenticity and advocacy, right? And these are critical things that we, when we talked about what we talked about just recently, which is humanizing marketing. These are the things that can do it. Um, I think that in B two B, to a certain extent, I think we want to think about uh, influencer marketing as being the the influencers who come out and sing our businesses praise, right? And that's, that's our goal for influencer marketing. I actually think if we think a little bit differently about that, which is we want to show that we're in the game, right? And, you know, Elisa brought up that and Derek talked about, okay, how do we talk our target market's language? I think part of it is how do we get in conversation with these influencers, whether it's having them at a roundtable with us or whether it's hosting an event with them. It's not just about them singing our praises. It's about showing that we get this community. We get these problems that you're trying to solve. We're in it with you. And I think that can be a way that influencer marketing can really um, work to advantage. I think you look at Stripe, you know, in the same playing space as checkout.com and somebody we respect so much and what they've done with their developer community marketing, where you know, developers trust Stripe gets what they do. And I think that that's incredibly powerful when we think about how these programs can be really, really effective on the B2B side. Lisa, do you think there's any watch outs, particularly in financial services? I do. I think firstly, uh, there's a lot of influencers out there now. I think people are cynical about what they're hearing sometimes. I think you've got to be authentic. That authentic piece has to be true. And it's got to be something that's People can make their own minds up about, so they can hear the stuff. They can, but they are given the opportunity to then make their own minds up about it, about what they're hearing, and weigh up those different conversations that they're hearing around them. Firstly, I think as well, you know, in a heavily regulated industry, which we are, 
it's always a little bit of a minefield. And that's definitely something that we have to be very cognizant about. We've got to be fair and transparent and we, we've got to make sure that it's impartial. That's, you know, it, it's got to be right for the customer. And I, I do think that that is definitely something that we have to be, it's, it's something that we have to be really, really careful about. But I agree with Derek around, you know, the customer is the best influencer of all. They're the best advocate of what we do. We use them a lot as well um, in case studies and also in, you know, to do sort of, um, you know, to, to promote our products and, you know, social activity, um, to come and talk to other customers at events. So we also do use our customers a lot because, you know, they've experienced what we can offer. They've experienced working with us. Um, they, they, you know, are happy to talk about their relationship with us. And, and that is true because we've delivered on a promise to them and therefore it's genuine. Uh, it's not just, you know, about somebody talking about what we do and having an opinion about what we do. And I think there is a difference between that. A takeaway here for me has been there's an, a work, there's work to be done around reframing uh, what influencer marketing really means for B2B marketing and, and particularly for financial services because certainly, you know, in my mind, influencer marketing, you immediately go to, your mind goes to YouTube, right? Someone that, that's getting paid to show your product on Instagram, et cetera. But I think in, in our world, um, as we talked about earlier, an influencer could also be the person internally that's singing your praises to their boss. An influencer could be an existing customer, a prospective customer. So there's there's a reframing that needs to be done to understand really the roles that influencer marketing could play. And maybe it's it's also just a terminology thing that we need to uh, recapture that because as Derek's pointed out, this is something that probably B2B has been doing for ages. I'm interested in hearing about social media more generally. And I don't mean this to sound like a question from 2005, but I think some B2Bs, especially in financial services, still struggle to find their voice on social media. So I was wondering if anyone has uh, any advice for B2Bs specifically in financial services and how to approach social media. Erin? I think we can go back a little bit to some of the points that we talked about, which is if you can identify what the real challenges or what the points of conversation, the language that your users or your target market is interested in using. I think that you can allow that to inform uh, your, your social strategy. I think that to a certain extent, social from a B2B standpoint is often looked at as a way to drive people somewhere else. Uh, I want to drive them to a lead form. I want to drive them to download my white paper. I want to drive them to attend my event versus they are here on this platform and I want to engage with them and I want to give them something that is thought provoking or that, again, makes them think, okay, this business gets it. They get what I'm dealing with. And so I think one piece of social is really thinking about how do you create experiences within those platforms that engage those potential users versus leveraging those platforms as a way to ship them somewhere else? And I think that's a shift that we're seeing uh, successful social media marketing from a B2B perspective taking. And I think that that's really interesting. That makes so much sense. Finally, to wrap us up, we said we'd give our listeners insights as well as actionable tips. So I'd love to hear how your marketing teams are structured. Do you have people dedicated to ops, to sales enablement? Elisa, you mentioned ABM, all those B2B specific elements, uh, or do you have mixed skill sets, setups? 
Derek, you guys are on the smaller end right now, but how's your team structured? Yeah, so it's a small team. So uh, last year it was it was me, <laughs> and so then this year I added added two other people, and so actually three other people. And so kind of going back to Aaron's point, I use uh, other people in the company and their their subject matter expertise. They're our social influencers, and that's really our social media strategy, primarily through LinkedIn, because we can be very targeted to financial institutions. And so our social strategy, and then going into my team is I want the expertise that I hear day-to-day in conversations out on the social channels because I want people engaged with my people because my people are really, really smart, you know, I think. And I think they have a lot of really great things to say. And so most of our social media, the most um, impactful social media content we produce are from individuals. And letting individuals build brands within a company is perfectly acceptable. And the best way, I think, to drive a, more of an audience my uh, brand channels are then kind of just still pretty generic. And Darren's point, like people can go there and get the content they need and they get the latest press release and all that. But our people are telling most of the stories. So my team is structured really um, kind of operations. So an ops group that helps to drive and collect all the data to make sure I always just say like to make the trains, make sure the trains are on the right track and they're landing at the station and picking up people that need to get picked up and dropping off people that need to get picked off and all the data is flowing. Uh, and then I have like a head of content that uh, helps me just write and be creative. And so it's just part operations, part, part content at this point in time. At least on the very other end of the scale. <laughs> I'm very fortunate. Um, I do have, obviously, a, a, quite a, a reasonably sized team. And, you know, we are focused on customers. So we are um, structured across SME corporate. But not forgetting, though, that there is, you know, a lot of commonality between those segments too. At the end of the day, it's a customer. But it's the channels to market that are different. You know, so we do have much more of a digital bias for our small business customers where we think about, uh, you know, how we engage with them, how we interact with them, and also how we transact with them, uh, ultimately. And then, at that, you know, then I have a team that's focused much more on the relationship side, so where we are doing account-based marketing, sales support, you know, we work in hand-in-hand with our sales organisation. And actually, uh, as Derek said, you know, the sales organisation is a massive voice for us. You know, we talked about social earlier. You know, being able to filter things through that sort of network from social media platforms is an amazing and valuable asset for us. So, yes, we are sort of customer focused rather than channel. Uh, And because I like to give people ownership, I like them to sort of own that customer relationship and think about the full sort of range of of ways in which we would uh, talk to a customer, engage with a customer, rather than it being, well, I focus on this channel and I focus on that channel, because that's when I think you get a very siloed approach. And actually, your messaging to customers is then very segmented and it doesn't feel consistent. Um, so that's what we do. And, but then you've got, you know, the things that flow through that, which is your data flows through, your platforms flow through. So you've sort of got this um, customer-focused approach, but then you've got these other areas that run across parallel so that that's where you can then join the dots between the different customers that we, we serve. Erin, how's your team structured? So... We have a, a functionally based team, right? So we do have those channel elements. But I, I think that uh, what was both expressed is really interesting, which is it is that that de-siloing, which is really key. I think for a hyper growth company like Checkout.com, specialization is important, right? We need people who know how to come in and build marketing automation or who have done very uh, advanced digital media and really can run those agencies, run that trafficking of those ads. But to the point that was just made, 
it's critical that they understand how their channel and how those customers flow through that funnel. Um, And so that handshake moment between those channel teams is really critical. And I think one thing that we focus on a lot in our organization is finding moments where we can break down those silos and ensure that people understand how does the work that I'm doing every day impact the next team over and as a result, create a smoother customer experience for our prospective merchants. That makes a lot of sense. That wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies, Derek? Sure. Uh, So you can just go to autobooks.co. Uh, so uh, autobooks.co, you can go to LinkedIn, uh, Derek Sutton, D-E-R-I-K-S-U-T-T-O-N. It's the same on Twitter, at Derek Sutton. Great. Alisa? Similar, I'm on LinkedIn, but obviously we have a Bark Cards website and do Bark as well, actually, part of the group. So uh, many channels in which to reach us. And Erin? And you can find us at checkout.com and you can find me on Twitter. I'm just at Erin Renzis. And you can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Mariette F-E-R. And of course, all things 11FS at 11FS.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Marketing Podcast or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much and goodbye.